This is The Weekly for February 22nd, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. On this edition, we examine North Korea and its leader, Kim Jong-un. As President Trump prepares for a second summit, this time in Vietnam, just what are the goals? Are there lessons from their first meeting in Singapore last June? And how do you measure whether North Korea is keeping its promises? From the future of that country's nuclear testing program to some background on the North Korean leader, we discuss all of it with Zhang Pak. She worked at the CIA, assisted in the preparation for the President's Daily Brief, and was on the staff of the National Intelligence Agency. She now heads up the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at Brookings. Our conversation in just a moment. But we begin with the president's first speech before the United Nations, Donald Trump with this threat to the North Korean leader, September 2017. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. But hopefully, this will not be necessary. That was President Trump on September 19, 2017. And Zhang Pak, how did we get from that point to what now will be a second summit in late February in Hanoi, Vietnam? It has to do with a lot of factors, I think, Steve. Um, One is that uh, maximum pressure campaign, which really had started in 2016 in the last year of the Obama administration, was really starting to take a bite. um, And Kim might have decided that this was a time to pivot toward engagement. Um, And it's also that um, the work of uh, the South Korean president, um, who... Moon Jae-in in South Korea, who was um, spooked by all that fire and fury and the uh, belligerent uh, converse, or rhetoric coming from the White House uh, and the potential for a military conflict. And he and President Moon really stepped up um, his efforts to midwife this relationship between Kim and Trump. And so uh, when uh, Kim Jong-un said in his New Year's speech in 2018 that he was willing to go to the Olympics, um, President Moon eagerly grasped onto that um, to invite him to the Olympics. Um, and so we start this uh, spring of summitry um, starting in February with the with the Olympics and followed on by uh, South Korean envoys visiting Pyongyang for the first time in a long time. How is the North Korean leader preparing for this summit? We know that he did travel to China. He met with President Xi Jinping. He's also met with his counterparts in South Korea. What's his approach been? I think Kim Jong-un watches us as much as we watch him. Um, And when you're looking at these two leaders, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, who are going to be meeting for the second time in Hanoi, that to Kim's benefit, um, the president Trump is an open book, literally. Um, There are lots of books about President Trump. There are lots of speeches. There are tens and thousands of tweets um, that the president himself has written. So uh, Kim Jong-un has a lot of information or lots of commentary um, written by and about um, President Trump. Um, But for Kim, his intentions are still pretty opaque, comparatively speaking. Uh, And so I think um, Kim is probably preparing for the summit by having visited China again uh, for the fourth time in January. Um, 
and in speaking with President Moon of South Korea. So I think he's preparing about how to manage this situation. Uh, we know that he spoke with President Xi Jinping of China about how to handle the the um, U.S. president. So I think Kim is preparing. Um, president Trump, on the other hand, I'm not sure um, how much preparation he is getting. Um, he said before the Singapore summit that he didn't need to prepare. Now, that could have been all um, bluster and optics and just to uh, throw people off. But um, that um, but when we're preparing for summits, um, when we're in the intelligence, when I was in the intelligence community, there's a lot of um, meetings to, that are held um, to talk about the nitty gritty um, the logistics, the details, what are the asks, what are the concessions. Um, and it's not clear that that is happening, although I, I do think that Special Representative Began is doing um, his job um, in trying to craft a, a deal before the summit. A portion of the New Year's message from the North Korean leader, and in that address, he did not seem to indicate that he is ready to denuclearize. Kim Jong-un and the regime itself has been have been pretty clear that they're not going to sign up for unilateral disarmament, um, and that Kim has said that we're not going to give up our nuclear weapons um, without corresponding U.S. measures, um, and which typically means sanctions removal, and the North Koreans have been pretty explicit about how they want the lifting of sanctions before they move any further. So when President Trump says no more testing, no longer a threat from North Korea, is that accurate? President Trump said that just hours after the Singapore summit, and I think that's uh, it's it's misleading in that I think it's a good thing that the North Koreans have refrained from ballistic missile testing and nuclear weapons testing for the past 400 plus years, uh, f- uh, f- sorry, 400 plus days, and uh, it prevents them from checking specific um, or testing specific capabilities and, and uh, perfecting them, but Let's remember that there there have been years where the North Koreans have not done any missile or nuclear testing because they were covertly and secretly advancing those capabilities, and they'll test when they're ready to test. And so my question is, at some point, Donald Trump will leave the presidency, whether it's in 2021 or 2025. Does he say, hey, look, I succeeded, and if this then goes back to a nuclear country, it's his successor's fault. I think that's right. Um, I think there's a p- potential that that's the, the narrative that is building that under his watch, North Korea came to the table. And it's true. Uh, Kim Jong-un did happen to come to the table and begin engaging for the first time in 2018. Let's remember that in the first six plus years of his rule, when he took over in December 2011, he refused to meet with any head of state or any um, offic- uh, high level official. And the most of the observations and information that we got about Kim were Dennis Rodman and a Japanese sushi chef who used to work work for the Kim family. So it is tr- it is factually true that under the Trump administration that Kim came to the table and started engaging with the outside world. But I think it would be a bit of a stretch to say that that there's a linear connection or direct causal relationship between President Trump's approach and um, Kim's decision at this particular moment to pivot to diplomacy. In just a moment, I want to play what President Trump said after the Singapore summit last June. But essentially, what was the declaration? What came from that summit? 
From the Singapore summit, we got four pillars, as Secretary of State Pompeo continues to refer them to uh, as. Um, and two of the pillars, the first two pillars, are on peace and, sec- and and normalizing ties between the U.S. and North Korea. And the third is where Kim says he will move toward or work toward denuclearization. And the final is the return of uh, prisoner of war remains um, from the Korean War, U.S. prisoner of war remains from the Korean War back to the United States. And that has happened. And that and that has happened to a certain extent. So I think so that was uh, a good sign. And that's something that Kim talks about um, when he says that he's fulfilled his part of the of the um, bargain from Singapore. Here's what President Trump said after that summit June of last year. There is no limit to what North Korea can achieve when it gives up its nuclear weapons and embraces commerce and engagement with the rest of the world that really wants to engage. Chairman Kim has before him an opportunity like no other to be remembered as the leader who ushered in a glorious new era of security and prosperity for his people. Chairman Kim and I just signed a joint statement in which he reaffirmed his unwavering commitment to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And Jong Pak, you're shaking your head. Kim didn't actually commit to complete denuclearization um, despite um, the talking points that get repeated. Um, Kim, in the, the Singapore statement, said that Kim would work toward denuclearization, which is different from um, complete or final, fully verified denuclearization that the Trump administration officials are talking about. So to that point, does Kim Jong-un really want peace or does he thrive in the instability in the region? The argument um, that some have proffered is that it's because of the United States that North Korea has nuclear weapons. And that's and that's consistent with North Korea's rhetoric as well, that it's because the United States attacked North Korea during the Korean War, which is not true. Um, North Koreans started the war in 1950. It's because of U.S. hostile policy that uh, North Korea has to have nuclear weapons. And the Kim family and Kim Jong-un himself um, is owner, is the owner of that nuclear, of those nuclear weapons, which means that he alone has the power to save North Korea from its outside enemies. And so despite what the North Koreans have said about wanting a security guarantees or um, their oft-repeated re- um, requests or demands for a peace treaty or peace agreement, it, it really masks the underlying intention, which is to deflect attention from the nuclear program. North Korea thrives on conflict. Um, it thrives because it makes money off of conflict in that it conflict in the Middle East and Africa and, and elsewhere is a boon for the North Korean conventional and, and missile market. And conflict in the region among and between the partner or al- our allies and partners is a boon for North Korea who c- that can take advantage of those cleavages and those relationships. I want to come back to all of these points, but you mentioned the Korean War. Why is it after nearly 70 years since the start of the war, an official declaration ending the war is so important in North Korea. I'm not convinced that North Korea that it's important for North Korea, um, but it is a way that the North Koreans say can say let's have a peace declaration so that we can start talking about non-nuclear issues. And it's a way of trying to get the US enmeshed in 
bilateral discussions, potentially bilateral discussions on non-nuclear issues. Another reason that the North Koreans might want a, a peace declaration or a peace treaty is that it starts to erode the argument for the presence of U.S. troops, the uh, existence of a U.S.-South Korea alliance, the existence of a U.S.-Japan uh, alliance. And so having a peace declaration is a way of trying to chip away at the U.S. Uh, presence in East Asia. President Trump has essentially said we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. And so it's a good thing, and I'm paraphrasing the president, but it's a good thing that I'm talking with the North Korean leader. What would you say to that? I think there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, the leader-to-leader relationship or, or summits. Kim, especially in the case of North Korea, where Kim is the only person that matters in, in making decisions on nuclear issues, it makes sense for uh, the two top leaders of North Korea and the United States to talk about these things. I think what has been problematic since Singapore is the absence of process uh, and the absence of deliverables and observable actions that the North Koreans uh, are taking to denuclearize. You've had a senior level position at the CIA and at the Office of National Intelligence. You've been responsible for helping prepare the president's daily brief. So based on your own experience, why didn't a George W. Bush or a Barack Obama or a Bill Clinton or a Ronald Reagan or even a Harry Truman sit down and talk with North Korean leaders? Typically, the summits with a a meeting with the U.S. president, given all of the time constraints involved, at least, is you save that for the last bit to um, pull the negotiations across the finish line and 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 almost as a reward um, in a lot of ways. For example, when President former President Clinton went to North Korea in 2009 to rescue those two journalists who were taken by the regime for allegedly crossing the border and for anti-North Korea activities, President Clinton made sure to not smile and to not fall for the um, the propaganda traps that uh, the North Korea um, the North Koreans had set up. And so it's important not to reward North Korea for its bad behavior. And because a meeting with the U.S. president is such a is such a prestige event that perhaps that you would need to save that for something that after there has been significant progress with North Korea. Let me remind our audience that we're talking with Jong Pak. She is a senior fellow at Brookings at the Center for East Asia Policy Studies, a graduate of Colgate University, earning her doctorate at Columbia University. And explain to our audience your own background and connection to North and South Korea. I was born in South Korea, um, moved to New York um, when I was young. And so my and I still have family in South Korea. So and I wasn't really going to study the Koreas I was or, or East Asia, for that matter. I was more interested in U.S. history, particularly the late 19th century up to the um, to the Cold War. But, you know, in graduate school, I learned that about that about myself, that I wanted to be much not just studying and teaching history, um, but to be actively involved in, in in part of history and being a part of history and shaping events. And so that's when I went into the um, Central Intelligence Agency, where I was an analyst, and it was a great privilege to be serving our, our country. Here's what President Trump said earlier this month in advance of the summit that will take place in Hanoi. Well, I'd just like to see ultimately denuclearization of North Korea. I think we will see that ultimately. Uh, I have no pressing time schedule, and uh, I think a lot of people would like to see it go very quickly from the other side. 
I really believe that North Korea can be a tremendous economic power when this is solved. Their location between Russia, China, and South Korea is unbelievable. I think that North Korea and Chairman Kim have some very positive things in mind, and we'll soon find out. But I'm in no rush. There's no testing. As long as there's no testing, I'm in no rush. If there's testing, that's another deal. What are you hearing? You know, this should raise alarm bells. I think the the the, the word ultimately, ultimate denuclearization, there's no time frame, um, which means that time is on North Korea's side on this, I think is really problematic. Um, because if the U.S. president is not worried about North Korea's possession of nuclear weapons, by some estimates, 20 to 60 nuclear weapons, and as, as we know, a variety of ballistic missiles that can um, deliver these, that can potentially deliver these weapons. If the U.S. president feels no urgency, then what does that mean for our relationship with their allies in the region that have been under this threat of North, uh, of North Korea for decades? What does that mean for the nonproliferation regime that we're trying to prevent countries from having nuclear weapons. And finally, what does it mean? How is Kim going to see this uh, in the lead up to the summit and his meeting with with President Trump? Why would he be incentivized to give up anything now if even the president is saying that ultimately he's looking for denuclearization? So let's turn to Kim Jong-un. This is from a 2014 CNN biography as he was rising to power. It's about a minute and a half. Let's listen. Now, despite North Korea's pariah status on the international stage, Kim Jong-un is creating an almost godlike image for himself at home, similar to that of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. Wherever he goes, he's met with fanatical devotion. Men wade waist deep just to get a look at him. Women are crying at his feet. It's really hard to know how much of this devotion is real, but the North Korean regime is doing a pretty good job of keeping the cult of Kim alive. He's also been seen several times with this woman, his wife, Ri Sol-ju. They recently had their first child, a daughter. But it's gotta be his friendship with American basketball star Dennis Rodman that's generated the most buzz. Rodman has been to North Korea several times, and despite Kim's international reputation as a despot, Rodman insists that Kim is an awesome guy. Now, just like his father before him, Kim has drawn the ire of the international community for his nuclear antics and his human rights abuses. Since he took power, prison camps in North Korea have expanded, and there's been a serious crackdown on would-be defectors. Kim shocked the world when he had his own uncle executed. And since then, he's been purging party officials who have any connection to the uncle lately to try and deflect some of that criticism. Kim has been trying to show his softer side. He's been photographed touring children's hospitals and orphanages, and he's ordered construction of amusement parks and ski resorts in the country. But despite the cult of personality that Kim has created, North Korea is still seen as one of the most opaque countries in the world. North Korea watchers say the jovial face we see masks a dark reality for the North Korean people. From a CNN biography five years ago, has anything changed? I think, uh, well, that was in 2014. We had the Sony hack late in 2014 in which North Korean entities were found to have hacked into the Sony Pictures Entertainment files, released 50,000 or so uh, social security numbers, and pretty much ruined the lives of uh, the Sony employees who are working there. They, all, they had also threatened 9-11 um, type attacks on theaters that would show the movie The Interview, a fictional account of CIA agents who are um, hired to kill Kim Jong-un. So 
there was the Sony hack in, in December in uh, late 2014. And then in 2017, um, there was the murder of his half brother at a at an airport in Malaysia uh, using a nerve agent. So lots of ha- lots have happened. And, and Kim has also tested three times more ballistic missiles than his father and grandfather combined. And he has conducted three to four, uh, four nuclear tests since he came to power. Without giving away any trade secrets, when you're at the CIA, when you were preparing the president's daily brief, how did you get information on North Korea and on its leader? Where did you go? We had the best news feeds um, at the at the agency, but CIA analysts rely on all source intelligence, um, and that's human human intelligence, signals intelligence, or SIGINT. There is OSINT, you know, the uh, which is the open source information, and there and, and GEOINT, which is the satellite imagery and other imagery that we get um, with our colleagues from the National Geospatial Agency. And so it's a variety of information that um, you have to piece together this puzzle of North Korea and do your best to make the call on what your assessments are on leadership intentions and their capabilities. We did know that he spent some time as a student in Switzerland, and this is from NBC. They tracked down one of his teachers when he was over there. His name was Un, uh, and he started school uh, uh, here in Konitz uh, uh, in the seventh class. Uh, he was about 14 years old. In his first English-language interview, Michel Riesen says he taught Un sports, math and German at this school. He was even his homeroom teacher. He was a good student, but he, he wasn't uh, extraordinary. But he says Kim Jong-un will likely understand English. So you think he would have at least learned a basic French yeah, and uh, English and German? To. You have to. It was 1998 when we believe he was in Bern, Switzerland. Intrigue surrounds his life here. It's thought Kim Jong-un spent many years in Europe. For a while, he's said to have lived in an apartment here with his aunt and uncle. So while we may know little of him, to underestimate his knowledge of the West might be a mistake. That courtesy of NBC News, and I want to pick up on that last point, his understanding of the U.S. and Western culture, even though he lives in what many describe as a hermit kingdom. I wouldn't go too far with that, you know, how much knowledge he has. I think um, he is, like like most people, um, he would need to validate his assumptions about various cultures and um, the, the political systems of various countries. So I think that, I think, yes, um, Kim spent four years outside of North Korea in Europe and studying in Switzerland when he was a teenager. Um, But I think it would be a mistake to make this link between, a direct link between his potential for reform and his four years in Switzerland. Um, And I think that, that he clearly is trying to understand um, the U.S. president. He's clearly trying to understand the United States. Um, and he's got advisors who have been working on the United States for, for the past several decades, including on um, nuclear negotiations. So bottom line, this is a, a big question, but I think an important one. How can we best understand Kim Jong-un, his government, and North Korea? I think the way we should look at North Korea and Kim himself is how... Everything that he's been doing plays into regime survival. Now, um, it goes without saying that every regime wants to survive. Um, but for Kim, the nuclear weapons and the human rights violations, frankly, and the and North Korea's isolation are all part of the package. On the one hand, he needs a hostile outside environment to justify 
the diverting of resources, scarce resources to the to the weapons program and to the military. And he also requires a hostile outside world to make sure that there's no dissent within um, to say that I'm the only one who can uh, who can save North Korea. So we have to root out any dissent. And so we have to see it as a a paranoid authoritarian regime that has very little interest in integrating with the outside world and and would prefer isolation on its own terms. Do you think in our lifetime we would ever see a united Korea? It's hard to say um, because when something happens, it just happens, right? Um, and I think at this point that reunification of North Korea would be, or reunification of the Korean Peninsula would be very difficult with a nuclear North Korea. Um, and that is something that the South Korean governments have been working working toward um, in, in, as a way of trying, whether it's through pressure or through uh, political economic engagement with North Korea to try to get it to give up its nuclear weapons. Let me get your reaction to this headline this past week from CBS News. The president's, quote, rushed diplomacy with North Korea could trigger a regional arms race. Is that a possibility with South Korea, Japan, yep, China? There, there are a lot of steps missing in that headline, I would think, um, in that President Trump and his eagerness to get something going with North Korea, get a good deal with North Korea, that he would be willing to concede on U.S. troop presence in Northeast Asia. He'll be willing to trade on alliances and partnerships and U.S. Um, pr uh, presence in the region. Um, and that that if we move toward an arms control narrative or arms control paradigm for North Korea and we accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power, that it would provide the voices in South Korea and Japan about rearming or, or ha developing their own nuclear weapons capabilities um, and that it would trigger this uh, bigger um, arms race in the region. So the lessons from the first summit and advice for the second summit are what? lessons from the second for from the first summit to the second summit I would say that Kim has weaknesses and vulnerabilities as well um, and that Kim is interested in engaging and seeing what he can get um, but that we should not think of him as this 10 foot tall giant who is completely invulnerable um, that we should recognize that he wants um, engagement and diplomacy for his uh, to to fulfill his interest which is to reduces dependence on China. So China is uh, by far North Korea's biggest trading partner. Kim wants to be relevant with the outside world. Even He knows that he cannot compete with the second, third, and 11th largest economy. So he does want to have economic development and prosperity across the board in North Korea. So, th so those are two of the key leverage points, um, and I think we should recognize that. But I... And I would suggest that let's not be, um, let's not not act in haste about. Let's try to get a, a commitment from him rather than vague aspirational statements, like we did in Singapore, that he is committed to abandoning his nuclear weapons program. When you talk to your family in South Korea, the threat from North Korea, what do they tell you? They're not really talking about the threat from North Korea. It's more about the economy in South Korea, um, and that. You know, I think from the region, their perspective is very different. Um, when you've been living with a nuclear North Korea just 35 miles away from where you live uh, for a couple of decades now, um, you have a different 
way of looking at nuclear crises because every when every day is a crisis, then you know nothing is a crisis, um, and so the region is much more much is much more concerned about the 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 day to day um, pocketbook issues. I think, in a way, a lot of ways, politics is right um, than than about North Korean denuclearization. As somebody who studied American history, are there any lessons from American history? in approaching North Korea? I think, you know, not just in history, but overall in your in the liberal arts critical thinking is that let's be careful about not mirror imaging. Um, and I think it goes to what the pre- what President Trump said about um, touting North Korea's location. Um, and the president is speaking from the perspective of a businessman um, and a real estate mogul from from New York City. But you know, um, North Korea sees its location as a vulnerability, um, which is why it has developed nuclear weapons to make sure that it remains relevant and maintains its sovereignty and independence and autonomy in the amidst um, uh, more powerful neighbors. Jung Pak, former senior level positions at both the CIA and the Office of National Intelligence, a senior fellow and director of the Center for East Asia Studies at Brookings. Your work available online at brookings.edu. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available online at cspan.org or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. 